All right, are you ready? You ready? So, the first couple things that we look at here, and we'll look at rather quickly because they're just a follow-up from last time, the way we ended up last time, and here we go, the hubbub. I love that term, the hubbub. When the pilgrims arrived, when Christian and his friend Faithful arrived in Vanity Fair, uh, there was a hubbub, and all this disturbance was for basically four things. The dress of the pilgrims was different. Their speech was different. It was the language of Canaan. They cared not for the wares that were being sold, wares of all sorts. And finally, the bold declaration that was made by these two men, these two Christian men, we buy the truth. Well, it didn't take long after that for them to be mocked, beaten, smeared with dirt, put in a cage, made sport of, put in chains, paraded through the town, and then their feet put in stocks. Mistreated, to say the least, but they behaved themselves wisely and soberly all during that. You know what? That is going to have an effect on some of the people that observe this. And then finally, they comforted one another and secretly wished that they would be the one that gets the most treatment rather than their companion. Now, last time I just mentioned briefly a couple statements that I ran into uh, probably about a year or two ago. The world is both hostile and enticing. We're misfits maligned by a mocking world. The exclusivity of Christ has rugged consequences. You have to be willing to pay the price. If we mean not to be burned, let us not walk upon the coals of temptation. That's a good one, isn't it? Well, before we get into the trial, I just want to read you one more time, and I know you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. But it is from, it's the classic passage in 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. Well, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That is such a critical passage, and we are living in Vanity Fair. You know that. It's undeniable. We are living in Vanity Fair, surrounded by the kind of things that Christian and faithful were surrounded with when they entered in. Now, you saw in review of one of the slides from last week that they have already suffered a lot of things, physical as well as mockery and all that. But we come to the place in this chapter now where the account is not over 
of their time in Vanity Fair. But it says, then a convenient time being appointed, they brought them forth to their trial in order to their condemnation, the trial. Now, as a preliminary thing here, number one, a preliminary look at the word, and, and this could very easily take us the whole of our Sunday school time actually on each one of these things, but when we're talking about the trial, and when Bunyan writes about this, he writes about it in pretty good detail, pretty significant detail, doesn't pass over it quickly. But I was reminded of some pretty significant trials that are recorded in Scripture, particularly the New Testament. And this is just a very, very brief overview of them. And take a look at this. The trial, or rather trials, of Jesus, and by trials I mean the, the various aspects of his trial before he was crucified. Jesus was brought before Annas, then Caiaphas, then the Sanhedrin, then Pontius Pilate, then Herod Antipas, and then Pontius Pilate once again. He is tried for blasphemy and sedition, to just try to put it in the simplest fashion up here. How blasphemy? How is Jesus charged with blasphemy? Because he said that he was the Son of God. He said that he was the Son of God. And, what, and this is... Uh, you know, such a notable picture in the Gospels. Are you then the Son of God? Says Caiaphas. And Jesus says what? You said it. You said it. And what does Caiaphas do? Rips, tears, rends his garment as a sign of mock horror that blasphemy had commit, been committed right in front of him. What mockery. And sedition, they tried to make it out that that Jesus was in conflict with the Roman Empire saying not to pay taxes to Caesar. What a twisting of the truth that is. Surrender to Caesar? Yeah, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But anyhow, the interesting feature in the Gospels is, and we have four Gospels that give the accounts of this, and one of, one of the greatest tools that you can have for the study of the life of Christ is a harmony of the Gospels. But when you look at all the accounts here, you read over and over again the words of Pilate. I find no fault in him at all. I find no cause for uh, accusation. I, I, I think perhaps as many as five times he made that declaration. But what was the result? Uh, we're well aware of the fact that Jesus was crucified crucified. A second trial of significance is the trial of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin. Stephen is accused of blasphemy. More specifically, Stephen is accused of speaking against uh, Moses and against God and against the temple. Those things. Uh, and then in chapter 7, we have a long defense, apologia, a long apology given by Stephen as he goes through a selective review of Old Testament history. And by that selective review of Old Testament history shows that he is innocent 
of all of those charges that were made against him. Uh, a significant feature here is that we are told in Dr. Luke's record of this that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. As I think F.F. Bruce put it, it's like if no one else would stand to his defense, he sees Jesus standing to his defense and ready to welcome his faithful servant home. And how did Stephen meet his enemy? He was stoned. Stoned to death. Who was a notable witness of that? None other than Paul, or I prefer to call him Saul of Tarsus, but they're the same guy anyhow, right? Saul of Tarsus, who was in agreement with what was happening. And speaking of Paul, a third notable trial is the trial of the Apostle Paul. And this is an interesting thing because it all kind of began when Paul came to the end of his third missionary journey and came to Jerusalem and he was presenting in Jerusalem among, among other things the gifts that had been collected in the Gentile churches to give them to the Jerusalem church to James and the elders there to be distributed among the poor the needy in the Jerusalem church and when Paul was in the temple with some others he was paying their expense for the sacrifice that they were making to end a vow that they had made the crowd was stirred up by individuals that had apparently come all the way from asia that is from the city of ephesus and they stirred the crowd up and they made some charges against him they said he was guilty of sedition that is he was spreading you know, there were riots that occurred everywhere he went in the empire, and that wasn't healthy for the empire, for, for Caesar. They said he was a, ringly, a religious kook, that is, he uh, was propagating the religion that they referred to as the Nazarenes, that of the Nazarenes, and of course that's followers of Jesus. And they said, and it's very interesting the way this charge sort of morphed along the way, they said that he was a temple profaner, or at least he was tempted to do it, but we stopped him. Initially, they said he did it because he brought a Gentile from the city of Ephesus into the Jewish precincts of the temple, and that was something that was a capital offense. And then they changed it a little bit and said, we stopped him. He was going to do it, but we stopped him. Well, you know, before the verdict is given here, at the end of this column, the Apostle Paul has the opportunity to give his testimony in Jerusalem before that mob as he is being led up the stairs into the fortress of Antonia. And then, after a relatively short time in Jerusalem, he is taken to Caesarea where he could be kept more safely. And then, two years after he got there, when Festus was the government authority there uh, Paul appeals to Caesar because these charges were not stopping he appeals to Caesar and as a Roman citizen he had that right to do that and so he gives one more opportunity to give a testimony there it wasn't really a trial situation per se but he has one more opportunity to give an account of himself and during the course of that, and probably a couple other times leading up to that, 
Paul made it very, very clear that he had a clear conscience before God and man of the things that he was charged of. And he made his appeal to Caesar, and having made his appeal to Caesar, he is going to be sent to Rome. He is. And he's going to stand before Caesar. Now, that's not going to happen too quickly either. But the interesting thing is, after Paul makes this appeal, and after his testimony is done there in Caesarea, those civil magistrates looked at each other and said, this, could have, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I, I don't think that means that Paul did something stupid in appealing to Caesar. He was forced into that, if you will. But let's move past this, and let's go to the trial now. The trial of Christian and faithful in Vanity Fair. The judge, the name that Bunyan gives to him is Lord Hate Good. Lord Hate Good. Before I show you any more from the screen, and you, you have some of it in your notes here, the indictment, I was reading last night in these books, the one by Spurgeon and the other here by Alexander White, and the chapter in Alexander White's book, chapter 19, called Judge Hate Good, and how revealing this chapter was. We have the whole ecclesiastical jurisprudence of Charles and James Stewart put before us in that single satirical sentence. Who is it? It is an individual named Judge Jeffries a real individual that no doubt Bunyan based this on, George Jeffries, that he talks about in this chapter, and what a horrible, horrible scoundrel this judge was that he's talking about, that apparently Bunyan's character is based on, but the very interesting thing is, before that chapter is done, before that chapter is done, Alexander White points out that we better be very, very careful that none of the characteristics of him are found in us. All I can tell you is it would be a good chapter to read, very convicting to read. But here's the indictment. They, Christian and faithful, were enemies to and disturbers of the trade they had made commotions and divisions in the town and had won a party to their own most dangerous opinions in contempt of the law of their prince. Which prince is this talking about? It's talking about the devil, Beelzebub, the one who's the prince over Vanity Fair. That's the indictment that they're being put on trial for. Faithful's testimony. Now, if you have read these pages, as uh, I hope you have, but, but don't you stand in awe of the faithfulness and boldness of this man? He didn't mince any words here. He didn't mince any words at all. Faithful begins by saying that he had only set himself against that which had set itself against him, capital H, that is higher than the highest. Second of all, faithful said the parties that were won by them 
were won by seeing their truth and innocence. Now, who are the parties won by them? What does that mean? There were some individuals in Vanity Fair who were convinced of the truth. One of them is going to actually appear at the end of the chapter and will become Christian's companion after the loss of faithful. What was his name? Hopeful. Faithful says boldly, he defied Beelzebub and all his angels. Well, this judge, this wicked judge named Judge Hategood, you can imagine how he would respond to bold answers like that. So three honorable witnesses are called. They're called honorable witnesses as the account is being written, but I thought it would be good to throw a question mark in here. They're far less than honorable they are. Now, this is the way they're depicted in some of the old books, and you probably can't read the names from where you're sitting. I can read them up here. This is envy right here. This is superstition right here. And this guy, this guy named Pickthank, you say, what in the world? Where does that come from? In time. In time. So let's hear what these three honorable witnesses have to say in response to Faithful's first testimony. Envy. Envy says, Faithful was disloyal to their country, their customs, and their rulers. Superstition said, well, Faithful is a pestilent fellow and worships in vain. What is a pestilent fellow, pray tell? Disease-bearing. Disease-bearing. You know what? That is pretty much the same thing that was said about the Apostle Paul as he stood and heard the charges that were leveled against him by a man named Tertullus, a hired orator brought with the Jews to Caesarea. He is a pestilent fellow. Some translations will just put it, he is a pest. Some translations will even put it, he is a plague. Disease-bearing, you know, whatever. What, what, what are disease-bearing critters? Rats. Rats are thought to be the cause of the bubonic plague, among other Mosquitoes? things. Mosquitoes? What's that? Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, yeah. Ticks. Ticks, yeah. Lyme disease. Yeah, Lyme disease. Roaches? Nobody in this room likes a roach. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure on that one. State bird. Yeah. All right. Faithful is a pestilent fellow and worships in vain. And now this last guy, Pickthank. Pickthank. Pickthank is a servile flatterer who picks on others for personal thanks. That's how he got the name Pickthank. Some of the descriptions of him in the books call him a chameleon. He can change, you know, change like a chameleon changes. Pickthank. What does he say? He attacked Faithful for railing against their prince, Beelzebub, the devil. Three witnesses against the pilgrims, well, they're anything less than honorable witnesses. <coughs> 
faithful's defense once again. Uh, the judge called faithful a renegade, a heretic, and a traitor, and now faithful responds. The word of God is the standard for his life and conduct. To which we all absolutely 100% agree. Do we not? The word of God is the standard for our life and conduct. The word of God is oftentimes described as our only infallible guide to faith and practice. That is what we believe and what we <coughs> for what we believe and how we act. So, Faithful affirms that. Second of all, the worship of God must be in accordance with divine revelation. What is divine revelation? Well, again, what God has revealed in his word. Uh, this is what, in many reform circles, is referred to as the regulative principle. The regulative principle. What should regulate the way that we worship and should regulate the things that we incorporate in our worship? Well, the Word of God should. That's what should. Not, not tradition or other such things. Just think through our service today. What things played a part in our service of worship today? Name one. Music. Music, number one. Singing your hands. What else? Prayer. Prayer was a part of it. Teaching the word. Teaching the word was a part of it. Reading scripture was a part of it. Lord The Lord's Supper, one of the sacraments, was observed. Church discipline. Church discipline, even. Do we have a warrant in scripture? Well, Steve read the warrant in scripture once again. The worship of God must be in accordance with divine. Revelation. Faithful affirmed that. And what's the third thing he says? Pick thank his friends and the prince of the town were all fit for being in hell. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Didn't mince any words there, did he? Didn't mince any words. Was he wrong in any of that? No. He wasn't. What, what, was he kind of out of place in saying that? Uh, I don't think so. Would we have been bold enough to say that? Well, that's questionable, maybe. May God give us that kind of boldness. Well, Judge Haygood, you, you can see he's probably not feeling too good about the defense that Faithful is giving. Three examples to influence the jury. Now, who gives these three examples here? Who gives these three examples? This is all the way at the top of your second page here. <clears throat> okay. The judge's speech to the jury, who all this while stood by to hear and observe. Gentlemen of the jury, you see this man about whom so great an uproar hath been made in this town. You've also heard what these worthy gentlemen have witnessed against him. Also, you have heard his reply and confession. 
it lieth now in your breasts to hang him or save his life. But yet I think we to instruct you into our law, and lo and behold, it's Judge Haygood who offers these three examples to influence the jury. And who are these examples? Well, there they are. Who's the one on the left? Pharaoh. The middle one? Nebuchadnezzar. The one on the right? Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede. Now, how are they given as examples here? Let me read it to you. There was an act made in the days of Pharaoh the Great, servant to our prince, Pharaoh, servant to Beelzebub, the devil, that lest those of a contrary religion should multiply and go too strong for him, their males should be thrown into the river. <laughs> there was also an act made in the days of Nebuchadnezzar the Great and other of his servants, that is, servant of Beelzebub, that whoever would not fall down and worship his golden image should be thrown into a fiery furnace. There was also an act made in the days of Darius, that whoso for some time called upon any god but him should be cast into the lion's den. Now the substance of these laws, this rebel has broken, not only in thought, which is not to be born, but also in word and deed, which must therefore needs be intolerable. Three individuals that we know from Scripture and the specifics that Judge Haygood gives are reasons why his jury should follow the example of these men in putting what we see to be good and faithful men to death. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. A jury of villains. A jury of villains. Two guys. A jury of villains right here. Just look at the names down the left-hand column here. Don't try to identify them with any particular face here because I don't know that we're warranted to do that. But listen to the names. Mr. Blind Man, who was the foreman of the jury. Mr. No Good. <coughs> Mr. Malice. <coughs> Mr. Love Lust. Mr. Live Loose. Mr. Heady. Mr. High Minded. Mr. Enmity. Mr. Liar. Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and finally, Mr. Implacable. What do these men say? And they say it in relatively brief terms, but what is the opinion of each one of those individuals? You have an opportunity to fill in some blanks now. The blind man sees clearly. Uh, that is irony, isn't it here? The jury speaks, and the first man says, I see clearly he is a heretic. It's Mr. Blind Man. I see clearly. You have to laugh at some of these things. What, what wit Bunyan has in pressing home the truth here. Mr. No Good says, away with him from the earth. Doesn't mince words. Away with him from the earth. Mr. Malice. I hate the very looks of him. I can't stand to look at him, he's saying, in essence. 
Mr. Love Lust. I could never endure him. I can't stand him. I can't stand him is essentially what you're saying. Mr. Live Loose. Mr. Live Loose. He was always condemning my way. And it didn't make him very happy that he was condemning his way. Mr. Hetty. <laughs> hang him! Hang him! And on the same line, because I couldn't fit all of you on here, on the same line, this is Mr. Highmind. He is a sorry ruffian. In the language of the older translations, for the word ruffian, he says he is a sorry scrub. <laughs> scrub is the term that he uses, but it's the word for ruffian. That's the best he could think of to say about faithful. Next line. Mr. Enmity, my heart rises against him. Save the next part of the line for the next guy, but let me read that again. My heart rises against him. You, you know what I would say with regard to that? He gets my blood pressure up. <laughs> I think that's essentially what he's saying here. He makes my blood pressure rise. Then Mr. Liar, he is a rogue. Mr. Cruelty, hanging is too good for him. Hanging is too good for him. Coming down the home stretch, you guys. Mr. Hate Light, let's dispatch him out of the way. Finally, Mr. Implacable. If I had all the world given to me, I still could not be reconciled to him. <clears throat> Would you say that the jury are of one heart and one mind? I think so. I think so. No question about it. Nobody in the jury speaks to his defense. So I would say things are not looking very good for Mr. Faithful here, would you? <laughs> <coughs> the martyrdom of Faithful. <coughs> it would be one thing, <coughs> excuse me, it would be one thing to see here that they hang him. <coughs> but that's not enough. That's not enough. <coughs> now just look at this picture for a moment. What do you see in the picture? <coughs> I like the busy pictures for Vanity Fair because it was a busy, busy place. Obviously, this is faithful. And you can see that he is being prepared for his martyrdom. And there's a lot of other individuals standing around and all. The list is shocking and mind-boggling. He's scourged, which means what? He's whipped. He is buffeted. What is buffeting? He's, he's hit, he's hit, maybe slapped across the face or whatever. He's lanced with knives. Lanced with knives. He is stoned. 
He is stabbed with swords. It wasn't enough to lance him with knives. Now, stabbed with swords, and then he is burned to ashes. You know, one of the, I think, most shocking things to read about are the kind of tortures that have invented, have been invented to torture individuals in various contexts. I remember when Helen and I visited, uh, were visiting a castle in England, and I probably mentioned this at some time in various of our studies that we've done in here. In this count, in this castle, one of the things that we found in the dungeon where the tortures were being carried out was a, a it looked like a cage that a man could be chained into and then hang, hanged up until he died and rotted out of that cage. And we were told that the, that the, that the, the bravest and most noble of the individuals back in that time were reduced to tears when they were condemned to that. But think of all the other things, the, the thumb screws, uh, the leg things, that they would tighten and break the bones in the legs and all that. Well, they did, <clears throat> they did a whole lot, a whole lot to be faithful, to, to faithful here before he died. <clears throat> but there's one little part of that picture that you might miss if you're not looking carefully. And that is, the chariot and the horses pulling the chariot, kind of similar to what we would see in a picture depicting what happened to the prophet Elijah. All right, a picture of ashes and remaining flames. but he that overrules all things. These are Bunyan's exact words once again. But he that overrules all things. Um, I just love it when I encounter the phrases like that. Again, it reminds me of, by God, by God, when Christian was in his, <coughs> his fight to the death, it seemed, with Apollyon, when Christian was about to be done in, laying on the ground. His sword had come out of his hand. Apollyon saw, here is his chance to do Christian in, but God, but God. And here we see it again, that he that overrules all things, that's God. Well, but he that overrules all things, Christian is returned to prison for a space, that is for a time. Remember, evangelist said, one or both of you will become martyrs in Vanity Fair. One or both of you. Christian has returned to his prison for a space. What then? Will he be brought out to suffer the same fate? Well, God brought it about that Christian, for that time, escaped them and went his way. Christian escaped them and went his way. Let me read to you from Bunyan's own words here. And as he went, he sang, saying... Well, faithful, 
thou hast faithfully professed unto the Lord with him thou shalt be blessed when faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights sing faithful sing and let thy name survive for though they killed thee thou art yet alive <laughs> that is great isn't it well there's room on the screen for more here Christian did not go out alone for there was one whose name was hopeful being made so by the beholding Christian and faithful in their words and behavior and that's where we come to the end of what I had room to type and pretty much the end of this section as well because the very next words are so I saw that quickly after they were got out of the fair they overtook one that was going before them whose name was Bayens and so that's where we're going on our next visit in Pilgrim's Progress here, Bayens. First thing is going to be to figure out why in the world is his name Bayens. What does that mean? That's quite unfamiliar to us, I think. But it is going to bring about a lesson that I think warrants the title, as you see at the very bottom of your page, The Worshippers of Wealth. The Worshippers of Wealth. So, before we get into that, next week, we, we really have more minutes here uh, to either eat more cookies or chat some more, both of which are good things to do, or to make some more observations about this chapter. What do you think about having just come through this chapter, both last week and this week? Vanity Fair and the trial in Vanity Fair. Rachel? Um, something that struck me that was interesting than the jury of villains is how how much they kept talking about um, kind of almost like they knew him and they had just met him. Huh. And it just made me think about how um, often uh, the world, if they since they don't know Christ, if anybody proclaims him, <coughs> they can be very adverse to that and make assumptions about who they are. And I mean, obviously we can do that to others too, but that it's interesting that they just acted like they knew him and they couldn't tolerate him but they didn't they can be so tolerant of everything else but they can't be tolerant of the truth yeah tolerant of everything but but the truth yeah. <laughs> now, what an irony right um one thing that struck me here too is just how brazen the you know the whole town the jury and the, and the things are against the christians and i'm knowing we're talking about this is the you know vanity fair the place they're at is also the name of a magazine, which I'm sure you guys have seen, you know, like check, 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 uh, grocery store, check, whatever. Yeah. And uh, I know I have a news feed on my phone that just collects uh, headlines from all around, and sometimes they'll throw a headline in from that magazine. And it just always surprises me how uh, how much hatred of Christians and stuff there, even just their headlines are from that magazine, which I think is based on this, uh, you know, this story. It sure seems so, doesn't it? Yeah. Sure seems so. There wasn't anybody to defend him. There wasn't I mean, anybody there, to defend him. I mean, there was the whole city was there, and the, the jury was condemning him. The city 
took faithful out and did these horrible things to them. But you don't see at this point anyone who stands up for him. Yeah. Although you see hopeful yeah. afterwards who right. is, right. you know, um, um, the way he, because he sees him, but he, the, it's very sad because you see him going in there and he's alone. Yeah. You know, hopeful clearly is going to become one of the next focuses mm -hmm. in in the story here. Um, but hopeful, hopeful is not the only one in there, and yet, you know, what chance does a Christian have living in Vanity <coughs> Fair, living alone in Vanity Fair? Boy, that's that, that's. It, it reminds me of Lot, ah, oh. and the fact that Lot lived in, you know, in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it took God to bring him out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, it reminded me of him. Yeah, I, I think it definitely should remind us of Lot, and believe it or not, when we come into the next chapter uh, about riches and the wealth, wealthy and all that kind of stuff, Lot's wife is going to make an appearance, in a sense. We'll have to see how she makes an appearance. But she will be encountered. Yeah. You know, yes. Casper? Um, the fact that nobody speaks out is not really surprising. You know? Yeah. Because we kind of experience the same thing um, in terms of, let's go down the road with gender pronouns. How easy is it for us to speak out? How easy is it for us to assert the truth when everyone around us is against someone? How, how easy is it to take a stand with someone that is publicly being tried or canceled or whatever it is and to identify with them? And, that's a, and that is a difficult struggle. And when you live in a city like Manity Fair, and you understand what the punishment is, <coughs> if you haven't really thought about it and prayed about it and put your mind at, at, at this place, it, you will be hard pressed to speak out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you brought up Lot. Lot, Lot is such an interesting <coughs> study. I, I mean, Lot is an enigma in, in several ways, I think. You know. Will we meet Lot in heaven? Well, I'm going to try to answer that. <coughs> All right, we sound like uh, we're getting ready to make a move. Let me hear the sound of zippers zipping. <laughs> ah, Vicki, well, Vicki. Um, you know, this is obviously a trial unto death. But we all go through trials yeah. that aren't unto death. And yeah. I think one of the messages in this is that you never know who's watching your life. Mm -hmm. You never know. I mean, you don't totally know the story of the circumstances that God has put them in, in their heart, um, to see you standing. And it can be for the encouragement of other believers. Um, it can be for the encouragement of those of no faith to consider things. Though we know that God is to be the one to touch their heart, but it can be for brothers and sisters. You just don't know who's watching your life. It's best to live it 
What, just as we close here, what were the four things that they found fault with with the pilgrims when they entered into the city? Four things that caused the hubbub. How they dressed. How they dressed. How they spoke. How they spoke. The language of Canaan. They bought truth. They, they bought truth, and they refused to buy their wares. That's it. I mean, think about those things. You know, how, how easy, how tempting is it for Listen, especially for our young people. You know, we we had to be very much in prayer for our young people, especially for the really young ones. The really young ones. You might feel not any connection with them or whatever, but listen, you pray for our really young people in the church. The patience that they would face compared to us in the, quote, good old days that... Yeah. Maybe the worst thing you did was chew gum in class or speak out, but the temptations. Yeah, I mean, imagine a Christian kid in the world. Yeah. You know what? My Bible is still open to this passage. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Wow. A good friend sent me a long email about, you know, Oh, we want peace. We don't want to ruffle things up. It's like, what what are the consequences if you want peace but don't speak against evil is what I got from this friend's email. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I would love to stop time right now and read you Spurgeon's words in the chapter on Vanity Fair. Such, such excellent words. Well, let's have a word of prayer. I, I really appreciate you being here. I love being with you. I really do. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you, Father, for the greatness of the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you, Lord, for the promise that the good work that you have begun in us will be completed, not by our efforts. But Father, you will finish the work that you started in us. Lord, please protect us. Lord, we pray for boldness similar to what faithful and Christian had. And Father, we pray for our young people, especially the little ones. We're growing up in a world where there are so many, so many temptations, many of which we couldn't even dream of when we were young. Father, please protect them. May their parents be faithful in instructing them. May their Sunday school teachers be faithful in instructing them. And Father, I pray that you would make them strong, make them unashamed of walking with you. And I pray, Father, that you would raise up from among them leaders, leaders in pointing people to Christ. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.